0: If we were honest with ourselves, right, um, most of us speak to and about ourselves in ways that we would never speak to or about other people. So you have an inner dialogue going on, and most of it is negative. And I'm not saying you, I'm saying we humans in general have an inner dialogue going on all the time that's usually very negative. And what I'm going to talk about is not psychology, it's not new age, it's Bible, it's kingdom. And uh, one of the greatest examples of this idea of what I'm going to be sharing today is David. David, uh, if you ever read Psalm 23, you hear him saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he leads me, he restores me, he heals me, he anoints my head with oil. What's happening? David is speaking to himself with a melody. And what is he speaking to himself about? The faithfulness of God. So your inner dialogue determines the trajectory of your life. What did the woman with the issue of blood who came to Jesus for healing say? She said within herself, if I would just lay hold of his garment, I would be healed. We believe, so we speak. I'm not speaking about naming it and claiming it. If it would work, I'd have ten Rolexes, three mansions, and like 27 Mercedes-Benz. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about faith rooted in the word of God, declaring it and making room for the kingdom to come and manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So the inner dialogue that we have determines the trajectory of our life it determines the atmosphere we live in it determines what people experience when they get around us it determines everything it determines the environment it determines what will live and what will die in the soil of your heart scientists have proven that if you speak to plants they grow faster and so this idea of speaking to yourself what did Paul say in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing what with Grace in your heart to the Lord. So there should be an inner dialogue. It should be to the Lord. It should be of the Lord. It should be about the Lord. But the reality is also you have a relationship with you. And if you neglect that relationship that you have with yourself, you will not be able to love your neighbor correctly. The scripture teaches us to love your neighbor as what? You love yourself. So if you don't feel valuable, how can you then add value to others? Right? All through the Psalms, you'll see David say things like, I will love the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will behold his face in righteousness. And and there's all of these verses where he is directing his thoughts, his feelings, his life, and his choices. And so you have the power. God has given you the power to determine where your life is going in his kingdom. The issue is not on Jesus' side of the equation. It says this, that the parable of the sower, the sower went out to sow seed. He's sowing the same seed. The issue is not with the seed. The issue is with the soil. It's my job to manage the soil of my heart, not Jesus' job. I cannot do his job, and he will not do my job. And so the renewing of our mind, he puts the responsibility and that privilege, he puts that ball in our court to see how we will respond to what he has commanded so that we can live as he's intended. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans 12. We're gonna get through this as best as we can. And uh, I believe that this will be a blessing to you. And I hope it encourages you. Verse one, I'm reading from the New King James. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm going to stop there for a minute. He says that through the mercy of God, he is inviting them to basically abstain from sexual immorality. That's really what this is about. And uh, Rome was a very perverse culture, very similar to the American culture that we live in now. And um, so he's encouraging them, by the mercies of God, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, if you have any understanding of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, you realize that there's no such thing as a living sacrifice. (laughs) Except the scapegoat. And he's not saying you're a scapegoat. You don't want to be a goat anyway. So, so he, what is he saying? He, it's actually a reference to Jesus. Because he had victory with his body, you can have victory with yours. The mercy of God gives us what we don't deserve and withholds what we do deserve. God is very generous. And so this is a, this is a picture actually of the resurrected Christ. A living sacrifice. You will have a new body forever. He will bear the proof of your purchase in his body forever. And so, because he has victory in his body, we can have victory in our bodies. Because he has stripes, we have healing. The price has been paid, but we have to put into practice that which he has already paid for. The call here is a clear call to abstain from sexual immorality. And he says this, do not be conformed to the world. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just move with the culture. You have two choices. You have, you can be conformed to this world. The Greek word there is aeon, this age. You can, you can be conformed. You can let Fox or CNN Shape your worldview, shape your future view, shape your view of everything. You can be conformed. We can be conformed to materialism. I, I am not what I wear. I am not what I have. You are not what you drive. You are not your address. You are not your net worth. You're more valuable than that. Right? You can identify yourself with the culture and be defined or conformed to this world. Or you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's one or the other, it's not both. So then that means that we have to make a clear choice who and what we're going to be, who and what we're going to value, and how we're actually going to live in this present world. And so um, the transformed mind is for the purpose of discerning God's will. And so that's that's really critical. God doesn't have three wills, He's not triple minded. Those are three descriptions of God's will. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Jesus tasted death for what? Every man. Hebrews 2.9. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's not for God so hated sin that he killed his son. When the apostles preached, they preached that it was Jesus whom you crucified. God didn't kill Jesus. We did. There's a big difference. If Jesus is protecting me from an angry father, they're not in agreement. and something's seriously wrong. It was for love that he gave, not for anger that he killed. How we tell the gospel determines how people hear it. It's really critical. Huge. And people blame God for things he's never done. People say this, and I've said it, God is in control. If God is in control, he's doing a miserable job, and he's a really bad guy. If God is in charge... Every single human is going to have to give an account to him because he paid for them. He tasted death for every man. He went to hell so we don't have to. But the reality is God is not micromanaging every little thing that happens and all of the, the, the terrible things that happen. As Many of them have, mostly 99.999% of them have nothing to do with God. They're, they're a consequence of sin which releases death. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. If we don't believe that, then we're going to blame God for things the devil does. And the devil loves to accuse God in your mind. He loves to accuse, if God were good, where was he? When this happened to you. When I have a God, the Bible teaches me of a God who is omnipresent, which means he was there. Scripture teaches us that he bottles tears, which means he was there when you're crying. And one day he will wipe every tear from your eye. So if you have thoughts that are, that are he is the one who's making you cry, how can you love, serve, and trust someone like that? Sounds like a monster, not a God. Jesus perfectly revealed the heart of the Father when he was nailed to the tree and he forgave the people who put him there and nailed him. What did heaven declare when Christ was born? Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. God has never changed his mind. Everything i ever done has been dealt with in Jesus. He is the living sacrifice. He is the model. He is the template. And so when we really love him, we take rule over ourself and we pattern our life according to what he said and commanded. And so it says this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's get into this word uh, Transformed. Transformed is a word, a uh, very interesting word. It's, it's the word metamorpho in Greek. To change, to transfigure, to transform, the English word would be metamorph or metamorphosis. It's a very, very interesting word, and it speaks to a process, and we're familiar with this process most with a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And so within a caterpillar, this is very, very interesting, they studied this at Georgetown University. In the neurons of the caterpillar, they have what is called imaginal discs. Those imaginal discs are the only thing that survive dissolution. So basically what happens is a caterpillar has little neurons and little discs in its little jelly self that... I don't know what it does. It moves very slow. And you could say it's crawling or I don't know what it is. but so it has this little thing inside it that tells it it needs to change that it's more than it than what it, it's it's more than what it is presently and so what it does is it climbs up as high as it can into it makes a little cocoon thing and it climbs as high as it can on its own and it gets stuck there and what happens is it dissolves totally and then eventually it becomes a butterfly so through death and, and 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 you know darkness and all this stuff it it it's transformed and the only thing that survives the dissolution process are those neurons that told it it needs to change and the only thing it carries with it from its past into its present is the lessons that it learned While it was a caterpillar. This is scientifically proven at Georgetown University. And so I don't know if you're seeing the picture. I don't know if you're seeing the connection between who we are, who we're supposed to be, and where we presently are. But I do know this, that God is fully committed to the process of our transformation. But he's put the ball in our court. And he says this, be renewed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is the thing that's very interesting. It's impossible, totally impossible, for a butterfly to become a caterpillar ever again. It's a point of no return. It is such a deep transformation that it takes a creature that was created to slither on the earth, and it brings it and lifts it up into the sky. Into the air. You see, you see what Jesus does? He, lifts, he, he was lifted up so that we would be seated with him. You are, if you're, people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I'm sorry if you define yourself by your past. You're actually a son or a daughter in the kingdom of God. I'm no longer defined by what I've done or by what's been done to me. I'm actually defined by who Jesus is to me and what he's done for me. And when I think of myself that way, I behave that way. Your words determine the direction of your life. And I'm not talking about naming it and claiming it. I'm talking about we believe and so we speak. <clears throat> now, here's another thing from science that is also very fascinating. You're, as you look out, Your eyes look out. What happens is your retinas send an invisible signal to your brain. And your brain is actually what interprets what you're seeing. So your retinas are communicating with your brain. And your brain interprets what you see. Meaning you don't see from the outside in. You see from the inside out. And so... When Paul is saying you have the mind of Christ, but it's your job to renew your mind, he's speaking to the potential of what has been purchased. And then he speaks to the responsibility of how we receive everything that he's paid for. So we need to renew our minds. But what's good about Paul is that he doesn't just tell you renew your mind. Well, what does that mean? He actually is going to define for you in detail exactly what a renewed mind looks like, how it perceives and how it sees. And so we're going to finish this in just a few minutes, but um, I really believe that this will be a blessing to you. Verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. The very first thing that the renewed mind deals with is how you perceive yourself. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Which means you th- should think highly of yourself, but not more highly than you ought to. Why should you think highly of yourself? Because cost determines value. What did Jesus pay for you? Everything. So you're valuable. But your value is not in what you have or what you do. It's what, in what he has done. So if you see your context, yourself in the context of the mercy and the grace of God, it gives you a healthy faith that first allows you to perceive yourself correctly. Many Christians, I hate to say this, I'm not trying to be critical, but many Christians are not self-aware. They think because they have good motives. They assume since they have good motives that everyone is interpreting them and receiving them properly, and they think that they're here with people, but they're actually still back here. And so they speak from here when they're really here. And there's a big gap. And that's actually how we lose influence, not gain influence. Many times we're answering questions that people are not asking. And many times we're offering our opinion in an authoritative manner when it's not wanted and it's not helpful. It doesn't make sense for Christians for us to hold people to standards that people don't believe in. That's why we have to meet people where they are. We'll never be able to bring them where God intends them to be if we don't meet them where they are. Jesus met people where they were. Paul said, I become all things to all people that I might win some. First, we have to identify with them. We have to meet them where they are. What did the good father do in Luke 15? He went out to meet his son. As soon as he saw that the son was on the way home, he said, I'm on the way out. And so this means that compassion should move us toward people that we would normally be inclined to move away from. Religious people move away from the very people that they should be moving toward. And we have to learn how to speak in this generation because religious people speak against things. Sincere people speak at people. But wisdom speaks to people. See... I'm going, to say, I'm going to say that again. It's very critical. Religion speaks against. Sincerity speaks at. But wisdom speaks to. We need to learn how to communicate with wisdom, with our actions, with our lifestyles, with how we speak, and even sometimes in what we don't say. Sometimes what we don't say is just as powerful as what we do say. Let's continue. Verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one in body in Christ and, having min- uh, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts deferring according to the grace that is given, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality or with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So here, what's very interesting is, so the first thing that the the, 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 uh, transformed uh, mind, the renewed mind that is for our transformation, the first thing it sees is how to properly perceive self. Because everything starts with me. I perceive everything through this filter. That's why if I have the right filter, I can perceive things correctly. And I can recognize the will of God, which shows me how I should behave, how I should live, and how I should approach life. So the first thing that the the renewed mind sees correctly is self. The second thing it sees is the value in one another. And he uses a very fascinating metaphor here. He uses the body the body is the only structure on planet Earth that can become stronger without adding to its structure. What, what do I mean by that? I mean you can have a guy who weighs 200 pounds and he can be 200 pounds of fat and he can be able to bench press nothing. You could have another guy, he has the same skeletal structure, the same bones, and he's 200 pounds of muscle and he can bench 350 pounds. So the the, the metaphor that Paul uses is a structure... That holds the substance together properly, but is capable of being strengthened and is capable of being productive. And he uses the human body because none of our parts are alike, but they know how to communicate so that they can be effective at their job. Does that make sense? So the renewed mind allows me to see myself properly, but it also allows me to see the value in you and it allows me to communicate with you in a way that is productive for the overall body. Do you see what? So, so this is important. He's going to give definition. And then he, he goes to, on to say, if you're going to give, give generously. If you're going to teach, teach right. So he's, he's now touching on the motives of how we do what we do in relating to one another, in using the gifts that God has given us to be a blessing to others. This is the renewed mind. It's encouraging to me because Paul doesn't say be renewed in this, you know, and, and then doesn't define it. He tells us exactly what it looks like, which is really important. Um, all right, let's continue in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is, is, is the reference there is basically don't put on a mask. Have you ever heard the Sunday smile? How you doing, brother? I'm good. Life is falling apart. You're not good. (laughs) Your wife hates you. You're not good. I promise, you know. And so we put on that smile and say it's all good when it's not. And this is a safe place where we can say, actually, it's not all good, man. This is the one and only safe place where you can actually take the mask off and be yourself. So let love be without a mask. Be honest about who you are and where you are. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. The greatest act of honor was when Jesus said, not you, me. And they let a thief go. He said, not, not you, me. He preferred us over his own life. That's honor. That makes you royalty. That ascribes worth and dignity to you. That means you're valuable. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Watch this. What does that mean? It means that sometimes people do not want to live peaceably with you and will not live peaceably with you. That's why it says as much as possible. Because there are some people who don't have any peace with themselves. And if they don't have peace with themselves, there is no way that they can have peace with you. You're trying to get something from them that they don't have. They are incapable of know being at peace with you because they're not at peace with God, which means they're not at peace with themselves. Which means there's confusion and chaos that surrounds them. It's okay to cut off a toxic and dysfunctional relationship and say, I forgive you, I bless you, but I'm moving on. Jesus died for everyone, but he didn't trust everyone. Love is unconditional. Honor is unconditional. Trust is not unconditional. Show me your integrity, I'll give you my trust. Until I see integrity, no trust. I love you, but I don't trust you. The scripture does not teach that trust is unconditional. Nowhere in the scripture does it teach that. All right? But beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Now watch this. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul has a theology of good is more powerful than evil. In the church, if you listen to how we speak, often it sounds as if our theology is evil is more powerful than good. People say things like this, the world is only getting darker and darker, it's really bad out there. But, you know, the problem with that is that John the Beloved, who knew Jesus better than any of us, said the true light is already shining and the darkness is fading away. So somebody's right. John or CNN. You're going to have to choose who you believe. This is a man who they tried to put in oil, didn't die. Uh, He saw the, the gospel go into the whole Roman Empire, 23 230 years later, the Roman emperor said, we give up. We cannot stop poor, unarmed, nonviolent, cheek-turning peasants who believe in a Jewish guy that was raised on the third day. We can't stop them. They have influenced the whole entire Roman empire. We capitulate. We cannot stop you. You are unstoppable. 230 years after the resurrection, that's what the most powerful man in the world said. We need to have a theology that good overcomes evil. That's what Paul said. It's challenging because it comes against some of the things that we've been taught or mistaught. But I'm just telling you what Paul the Apostle is saying. This is not my opinion. This is what he said. So he says that overcome evil with good, which means... You can and you should. Right? It's very interesting. He says this though if your enemy is hungry, feed him. But before that, it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So it's like, what, what, what are you, so you're talking about vengeance and feeding my enemy. So, how does God take vengeance on the wicked? When you feed them, when you love them, it's a different type of vengeance. Even the wrath of God is totally uh, defined differently in Romans chapter 1 by Paul. He says that the wrath of God is, in, is revealed from heaven that God gave people over to their own ungodly lusts. Speaking specifically of homosexuality and perversion. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that God is looking to fry people from the sky who are immoral? No. It actually means that he allowed them to have what they want he gave them a choice. That's very different. He's giving them over to the depravity of their own mind. He's not angry with them trying to destroy them. In fact, it hurts him and kills him. And he went to hell for them so that they wouldn't. And he's watching them destroy himself themselves. And he was destroyed so that they wouldn't have to be. It's very different than a God who wants to strike people versus a God who who suffers with us, for us, and as us. A God who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes. It's, it's very different. The world needs to hear of a God who died for them, who suffers with them, who cares for them, who died as them, not as someone who wants to punish them because of their own sin. Their sin is punishing them. And he paid the wages of sin so that they wouldn't have to have death, hell, and all the things that come with that. Another thing that's pretty interesting to realize and think about, it's really challenging, is that the only time Jesus ever mentioned hell was to religious people. Jesus never mentioned hell to anyone he ministered to, except the religious people. Never. Very interesting. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So if I take vengeance on someone, I'm actually stealing something that belongs to God, and I manifest the nature of Satan. How does God want to take vengeance on someone? By you feeding them. By you blessing those who curse you. By you praying for those who despitefully use you. Now, I understand that that's what Jesus says, but we live in a world that says, Well, if you fire a rocket at me, I'm going to fire 26 Tomahawk missiles at you because I'm American and that's my right. But are we Christian first or are we American first? I'm not a pacifist. I believe that the, the the civil government is has the sword to facilitate peace within the geographical borders of its of its of its ordered you know, jurisdiction. But that same sword that Paul talked about took his head off. And we have to choose what are we first? Where is our allegiance? Where who is Lord? Is Caesar Lord? Is the president? Is our, is, our, is our political affiliation? Our race? What are we first? What are we first? That's a critical question that we have to ask ourselves. If, if Jesus is first, it'll be seen in how we treat one another. It'll, it'll be seen in how we treat ourselves. It'll be seen how we treat the outside world, we have a privilege to show Christ to the world. And so I, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. Let me, we're we're going to wrap up in, in just a few minutes. But let me, um, let me just give you, um, let me just read this to you. The end of the chapter is how the renewed mind sees life and lives differently. We use our gifts with the right motives. We do things in the right spirit. We give generously. We show mercy cheerfully. Our love is without hypocrisy. We are diligent in work, fervent in spirit. We are energized by our expectations. You hear what I said? We are energized by our expectations. Doubt and disappointment will drain you. Physically will drain you. It says that we rejoice in hope. What in the world does that mean? It means... That I am having a belief about something that God will do in the future, but it has the power now to alter my emotional state. So expectation energizes you. People with expectation are full of energy. People who are doubted, doubted and doubting and disappointed and disillusioned are drained and always tired. Physically. I know because I went through it a few years ago. I was so ready to quit the ministry. I was ready to quit everything except really my wife. I was ready to just quit everything and just get a, a normal job and get like a good salary and a new escalate. I was, I was ready to just. And I had to hang in there and cry my way and pray my way and get encouraged through what was a Valley. Like a dark valley, felt like everything I was doing wasn't working out. I felt like I was loving on people for for nothing. It was, it, it, the church almost died that we planted. I figured, dear God, did I give 15 years of my life for this? I used to come to church. The church was so ugly. I was crying because of worship and because the place was so ugly. I didn't even know why I was crying. I felt like a crazy person. On the floor crying. I don't even know why I'm crying. Is it Jesus? Is it how ugly this place is? Is it both? It's like torture. It's crazy when the pastor doesn't want to go to church. I couldn't even preach come to church. I didn't even want to go to church. But often it's not our circumstances that need to change first. It's how we see them. Usually before there's a change out here, there's a change in here. And so, I encourage you, let's, let's continue. We are energized by our expectations. We are patient in testing and tribulation. We pray continually. We give to God's people generously. We show hospitality unbegrudgingly. Because our hearts are opened, our homes are opened. Because we're called and chosen, we're committed And focused because of who Jesus is to us, that shapes the posture of how we approach the world around us. And I want to encourage you guys to stay committed to the church, to the vision, to the mission. Open up your homes. This is not a consumer based thing of how long is it, how good is it. It was like a six out of ten today, a five out of nine. You know, this is not Yelp. Church is not Yelp. God is not asking my opinion on how it went. God is asking me to make a commitment to his son to honor and serve people and to give of my time, of my talent, and my treasure and to give back what he's given me freely you have received freely give god that's what god is requiring of us this is this is the 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 good news we get to be a part i don't know if you get this but we get to be a part of what god's doing you say well it's hard to see what god's doing well let me give you a little historical context the gospel outlasted the roman empire the gospel outlasted the dark ages it outlasted the Middle Ages. It outlasted all of the world wars. It outlasted Stalin. It outlasted Hitler. It outlasted Gaddafi. It will outlast ISIS. The gospel has outlasted everything. I had a guy come up to me and goes, he looks at me and he goes, You Muslim? I go, because I have this beard? I said, Christians had this beard 600 years before Muslims existed. History is on our side. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that Jesus is building. What Jesus is building is indestructible. We come from a kingdom that is unshakable. I know that this is hard for us to see. We turn on the news. Everything screams at us. Our phones scream at us. Everything screams. That's not true. It's not true. You're becoming more and more irrelevant. da 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 And It's not true. There'll be more Christians on the planet today than there was yesterday. Historically a fact. This is historically a fact. What God is doing in the earth is unprecedented, and we get to be a part of it.